Today's episode is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn a 5.1% annual percentage yield with a high-yield cash account. And while we can't say for certain that's the highest interest rate out there, we can say that at the time of this recording, that's higher than Robinhood, higher than SoFi, Marcus, Wealthfront, higher rate than Betterment, Capital One, Ally, Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo. I think you get the point here. If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description, U.S. members only. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Zach Foss, an investor at Irenic Capital Management. Today, we're breaking down the world's largest luxury business, LVMH. The LVMH story is deeply reflective of the vision of its 73-year-old founder and architect, Bernard Arnault. Today, the business generates 75 billion euro in sales across its 75 brands and three sector focuses. With a market cap of 350 billion euro, LVMH is not only the largest luxury business in the world, but one of the largest businesses in the entire world. To break down LVMH, I'm joined by Christian Billinger, the chairman of Billinger for Vaultings. We discuss the paradox between scarcity and scale in the luxury industry, analyze the company's high-profile acquisitions, and delve into the history of this conglomerate's famous founder. All right, Christian, thank you for joining us to break down LVMH. Louis Vuitton, Moy Hennessy is the namesake, is the world's largest luxury conglomerate. Business is set to do about 75 billion euro in sales this year, nearly 50% growth since pre-pandemic. And yet being relatively well-known amongst investors, the breadth and depth of its businesses are frankly striking. Louis Vuitton, Hennessy, but also Tiffany, Sephora, Laura Piana, Fendi. I mean, the list goes on. Maybe just to start, help us to better understand how this business came to be. So the history of the business is very closely tied to the history of Mr. Arnaud, Bernard Arnaud himself, who is the chairman, CEO, main shareholder of the company. So I think one of the key points to be aware of here is the fact that, of course, today, when you look at Arnaud, he's the very idea of the sort of Parisian establishment. But that wasn't always the case, and certainly not when it comes to his position in the luxury industry. So just to put this in context, so he grew up in the north of France in a pretty industrial part of northern France. The family was certainly well off for wealthy, but they were not in the luxury business. They had no connection to the luxury business. Therefore, he's always been an outsider to the industry, unlike Dumas' family or the people at Chanel, etc. And I think that's relevant to sort of keep in mind when you look at some of the deals, and especially the way he has put those deals together and his sort of negotiating tactics, etc. He's been considered uh, or viewed as quite American, I think, by many in the sort of French establishment. He was born in 1949, joined the family business in the early 70s. He's an engineer by training. And the business at the time was focused on construction. He shifted that emphasis to real estate first, and then later on to textiles. That's really how he sort of developed an interest in Dior, I think. The rumor is that his mother had a fascination with that brand, but I think he was also interested in a great brand, which was undermanaged or underperforming. He became aware of the strength of that brand when he ran his family business in the US. The story is that he was in a cab and I think he asked the cab driver if he knew of the French president. The response he got was, 
know, but I do know about Dior. And I think that really emphasized to him the uniqueness of that brand, also internationally. Something else that I've heard many times about Arno is that he has this unique combination of an engineering mindset and an artist mindset. And so you could argue that, like in so many other deals that he's been involved in, I think it's partly a sort of matter of passion and and it's partly a matter of business sort of calculation or decision. So the issues with Dior at the time were numerous, but for instance, they had made very extensive use of licenses. And I think they were sort of diluting the brand through doing that. One of the things Arnold did after he acquired the business is that he bought back these licenses. And I think he generally felt he could sort of be a much better owner of the asset, which is something we've also seen in a number of other deals like Bulgari, more recently in the case of Tiffany. So there are two sort of key points to be aware of, I think, is the idea of a sort of best owner of certain assets. And I think also this outsider perspective that allowed him to perhaps conduct himself in a way that other families in the luxury business haven't been able to or willing to. I think he had fewer relationships in the industry when he set out to build this conglomerate. And the idea of building a luxury conglomerate was very novel at the time. His idea was really that there were all these great brands and there was a huge growth runway in the industry or for the industry. But he felt that the business in many cases could be professionalized and better structured. And he wanted to consolidate the industry basically, often by acquiring family controlled businesses. And so Louis Vuitton and Maud Hennessy combined initially to build some sort of defense against an external takeover. And as part of that, the LV people wanted to get Arno on board to support them in that defense. Quite soon, Arno decided to switch loyalties. And so he ended up actually supporting the Moet Hennessy people. He ended up in control of that business. And he actually fired the guy who was in charge of LV at the time. And he was a real sort of older statesman of the luxury industry at the time. And the people in charge at Moe's Hennessy also left. And as a result of that, Arnold found himself in control of the combined LVMH asset and in control of Dior. That foundation that he created in the mid to late 80s was really the launch pad for everything we've seen in the last 35 or so years from LVMH. To investors, I often think it's helpful to think of this as similar to Berkshire Hathaway in a number of ways, both in terms of how it came about, the age of Mr. Buffett and Mr. Arnold when they sort of launched this, but also their mindset in terms of financial or fiscal conservatism, investing against the cycle, building a fortress, thinking intergenerationally. You don't necessarily need to be familiar with the luxury goods industry as such to appreciate the sort of model that Mr. Arnault has employed here. A house of luxury built through acquisitions. Maybe just give us a better sense across, you know, fashion and leather goods, wine and spirits, cosmetics, watches, um, even lodging and leisure, how the finances of the business are kind of spread in terms of revenue, margins and such. So that by far the most important division is fashion and leather goods. So depending on whether you look at pre-pandemic numbers or the latest reported set of numbers for 21, fashion and leather goods were almost half of revenues for the group and almost three quarters of operating earnings. And there's two brands in there that are especially important, not just for that division, but also for the group. So you have Louis Vuitton, which is almost 60% of revenues of that division and almost 70% of operating earnings within fashion and leather goods. And that means it comes out at almost 30% of group revenues and almost 50% of group EBIT. So it's hugely important. And the second brand that is very important in that division is Dior, which is something like 20% of revenues of that division. But clearly those two brands, and especially LV, is key for understanding the business and for taking a view on the value of the business and the growth outlook and all of that. And those two brands are clearly very well-managed. LV, I think if you go back eight or 10 years, they had a few issues in that business. They very successfully repositioned their handbag offering, which is very key to that brand. And you've seen a real acceleration in growth in the last 10 years. 
the other divisions are much smaller, but there's interesting opportunities, I think, in especially a couple of them. Watches and jewelry are about 15% of revenues and about 10% of operating earnings. And historically, that's not been a key focus of LVMH. LVMH has been much more about what you call soft fashion, as opposed to a group like Richemont, which is much more focused on hard luxury being watches and jewelry. That has changed slightly in the last 10 to 12 years. First with the acquisition by LVMH of Bulgari back in 2011. And then more recently, they acquired Tiffany, of course, in the US. And I think that's really transformed this division. And it's a really interesting growth opportunity for the next 5, 10, 15 years. There's a structural opportunity here in that branded products has very low penetration in the watches and jewelry space. I think it's something like 20% worldwide. And two-thirds of that branded market is Richemont and LVMH. And then you have Wines and Spirits, which is about 10% of revenues and earnings. 25 years ago, that was about 40% of earnings. So it's come down as a share of revenues and earnings. It's, it's declined significantly. That's largely because fashion and leather goods has been so successful in terms of top line and earnings growth. Wines and Spirits business, most of which is a joint venture with Diageo, where LVMH controls two-thirds of that. It's a very attractive combination of mainly a spirits business, which is focused on Hennessy, leading cognac brand, and a champagne business where they have a number of leading brands such as Dom Perignon, Brunart, and a few others. And they're two quite different markets. So cognac is a very concentrated market where Hennessy is the world leader, and there's very high barriers to entry. Champagne is a much more fragmented market where naturally LVMH has a lower market share, but nevertheless, a collection of very strong brands there. That's a relatively stable business. I think if you're looking for, if you were to rank these divisions, I think you'd probably say that Wines and Spirits is the most stable in terms of revenue growth and margins. And then you have two other divisions, perfumes and cosmetics, which is about 10% of revenues and about 4% of earnings. And you have selective retailing, which is a relatively large proportion of revenues, almost 20%. In terms of proportion of earnings, operating earnings, it's in the low single digits. So it's retail business, it's low operating margins. About 90% of that is Sephora, the beauty and cosmetics retailer. LVMH by market cap is not only one of the biggest luxury houses, but also one of the largest businesses in the world, coming in at 340 billion euro, give or take. What is it about their business that has enabled them to grow luxury, which to me says scarcity, at such tremendous scale? As we just discussed, it's a very diverse operation. If you compare it to most other luxury groups, it's much more diverse. Even if LV and to a lesser extent, Dior are very important brands. LVMH is less dependent on those two brands than Caring is dependent on Gucci, for instance, or Richemont is dependent on Cartier. So they've been able to grow across a number of categories through the acquisitions that Mr. Arnaud has sort of been involved in since the late 80s. So I think that's one important part of it. I think clearly... This is a business where scale matters. Large brands, and we've certainly seen this through the pandemic and through the last three or five years, the large brands and especially the mega brands outperform because they have more resources. They're able to get better store locations. They have more money to spend on advertising and product development and hiring talent. And so in a fixed cost business, in a business where you have a very high proportion of fixed costs through rentals, etc. Scale really matters. And LVMH is clearly the sort of biggest player in this industry. I think a third point to make is that Mr. Arnaud is clearly very long-term in his thinking. And if you look at, given what I've just said about operating leverage or high level of fixed costs, you would have assumed that operating margins in this business, given the growth we've seen over 10 and 20 years and longer, you would have assumed that operating margins would have expanded but actually, until last year, they didn't. So for a long, long time, they've been at 20% plus minus. And I think that's largely due to the fact that Mr. Arnold 
reinvest in the business at a very high level. And so he would rather nurture brand equity, expand the store network, do all the right things long term, and not see that come through the income statement in terms of expanding his operating margins. Are there any particular stories that you find to be symptomatic of that? Yeah, I think one example I could bring up is Samaritan department store in Paris, which I think Mr. Arnold acquired in 2001. In 2005, the building was closed to the public and it reopened again in 2021, so 16 years later. And I think it was estimated that LVMH spent about a billion dollars restoring that building over those 16 years before they reopened. And I went to visit shortly after they did reopen. And I think it's stunning. But I also think it's such a great example of how Mr. Arnold and LVMH really take the long-term view. Very few businesses, public or private, would be able or willing to spend that sort of money up front for a period as long as that before they generate any sort of revenues or earnings again. And to what extent do all the brands in different verticals, both verticalization and the horizontal nature of their business, work together to create a situation where the sum of the parts is worth more than the whole? There's not much in terms of synergies between the other brands. At holding level, I think the way management, group management looks at this, there's two or three sort of roles that the holding level plays here. I think one of them, and that's really played by Mr. Arnold himself mainly, is challenging the brand CEOs. So when you look at the divisions, they're just for reporting purposes. So all the brand CEOs report directly to Mr. Arnold. He will be on the phone with them. And to my understanding, it's there's a certain level of not necessarily fear, but certainly <laughs> tension around that. I mean, he's very demanding. He's very detail-oriented. He spends a lot of time, especially when it comes to LV and Dior, he spends an awful lot of time on the detail. So you have this strange dynamic between, on the one hand, full decentralization, where all the brands are fully autonomous, and they run their P&L, and they answer to no one but Mr. Arnold. But on the other hand, you have a chairman, CEO, founder, who is obsessive about detail and who really sort of keeps all his brand CEOs on top of things. It's a funny dynamic, but it clearly worked really well for the group. Another important function, of course, is capital allocation, once again, similar to Berkshire. So clearly, all these brand CEOs run their own businesses, and they send that money to headquarters. And Mr. Arnold looks for opportunities to allocate that capital internally or through acquisitions. But there isn't much in terms of synergies. And so we've loosely touched upon Arnaud's control of the business, effectively a family-owned and controlled business. He's five children that are involved in the business in varying degrees, but it kind of begs the question in regard to succession. What is the general view on how the business endures past Bernard's control? So I think this is one of the key questions here, certainly for a long-term investor, Mr. Arnaud, He intends to continue in the business for a long time. I think that he's 73, I believe. And as you said, so he has five children. I think four of them at least are active in the business today. One or two of them are more seen as more likely to perhaps, it's too early to say, but perhaps succeed Mr. Arnaud in that position. I think Alexander is perhaps the top pick at this point. These are just my speculations, but he's currently very involved in the repositioning of Tiffany. So I think he's shown great promise. There is a bench at top management level. So you have um, Antonio Belloni, who's really number two. And I think he manages much of the relationship with the brand CEOs, although Mr. Arnold sort of does as well. As I said, he's very focused on LV and to a lesser extent Dior. There's Michael Burke, who's in charge of LV and Tiffany. And there's Pietro Bicari at Dior. So there's a strong bench. But of course, unlike Hermes, for instance, this is not yet, I think, a true family business because it's still a first-generation business. And actually, one of the big questions for a long-term investor is, will this become another Hermes? Now, one of the challenges here is that unlike a monobrand business like Hermes, the diversity 
of LVMH means it's a very complex beast to manage. And I think that will also, or might also create challenges when it comes to succession. I hear some people actually suggesting that it may be too complex and difficult to manage as an integrated entity once Mr. Arnault is no longer in his position. Who knows, five or 10 or 15 years down the road, whether we'll see some sort of breakup or split of the business. That's too early to speculate on, but I think it's something to be aware of at least because it's so closely associated with one person. We kind of just take a step back and talk broadly about luxury and why it makes for such a good business. Historically, in my study of these types of businesses, the pricing power is immense. What else is it about luxury houses that allow them to enjoy such handsome returns on capital historically? The number one attraction is what you just mentioned. It's clearly the brand equity and the pricing power that comes with that. And I think it's also the fact that the pricing power tends to be sustainable or durable. Although the group, LVMH as a business, is only 30-something years old, the brands, the vast majority of the brands are much, much older. And there's a timelessness to them, which means that these brands have sort of proven themselves in different types of environments, in different economic cycles, through changes in consumer preferences. There's a sort of durability to that pricing power, which is very attractive if you're looking for a business that can generate sustainably high returns on capital. But on top of that, you also want reinvestment opportunities. And I think certainly until now, for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, largely driven by China, there's been this really supportive growth dynamic where these companies have been able to reinvest both organically and in acquisitions, which has meant that they've been able to compound their earnings at a very high rate. So that's clearly attractive. There's also some sort of specific aspects of LVMH that I think you asked about luxury generally, Zach, but I think if I look at LVMH, you get this very broad exposure to different categories of luxury, which is very attractive. You get a management team and especially a main shareholder that is very long-term, that cares about reinvesting in the business, and that has really focused on staying around for long enough to get exposure to all these trends. And I guess, how do you think about that in the context of a reinvestment runway? The global luxury industry is only so large. There are only so many assets that they can go out and acquire and integrate effectively. Just maybe reflect upon their ability to redeploy capital back into the business, either through acquisitions or reinvestment, and what you've noticed in your studies of the business. If I go back to the example of Berkshire again, you often hear from Buffett and Munger that we will not be able to grow at the rates that we grew at historically. And I think, to some extent, you should expect the same thing with LVMH. I don't think anyone expects the same growth that we've seen in the last 10 or 20 years being maintained for the very long run, partly for the reasons you mentioned, their size, the fact that they're having to look for bigger and bigger targets to move the needle. Having said that, this is still a market where you have very supportive growth dynamics. What you call personal luxury goods as a market is estimated to be worth about 300 billion euros. And about one third of that is Chinese spend inside and outside China. About 20% is European spend, and about 20% is American spend. I think there's still most sort of industry experts, I think, agree with this, that there's still a long runway in China. And beyond that, there are also opportunities in markets. In fact, many uh, geographies in Africa, I think, are showing lots of promise here in the sort of long to very long run India is a very interesting opportunity. So there's still plenty of organic growth opportunities. If I look at the last 10 years, so I looked at the amount of capital that Mr. Arnault deployed between the financial crisis and the start of the pandemic. And I got to a number of about 30 billion euros. And on that 30 billion, which is a pretty meaningful amount of capital to deploy, LVMH generated returns on incremental capital north of 20% which I think is very impressive. So that includes organic growth, such as opening new stores or investing in production facilities, but it also includes acquisitions. So in that time frame, they acquired businesses like Bulgari and Belmont Hotels and Laura Piana, et cetera. 
And that was from a relatively large base already. So I think they've shown great ability to both invest organically and acquire businesses. Tiffany's the most recent example of a meaningful acquisition where if they can do what, anything like what they did at Bulgari, that will produce very attractive return on incremental capital. So I still think there's great opportunities to sort of reinvest and grow this business. But of course, like any business, LVMH goes through a sort of life cycle. And I think where we are now, you probably wouldn't expect the same kind of very high growth rates that you've seen over the last 10 or 20 years, which I think is fine. Great capital allocation generally shows up in the financial strength of a business. I think you've done a great job capturing why they've been so adept at reinvesting in their business. How does that now show through into the financial profile of LVMH? So everything we've talked about is reflected in the financials. So if you look at organic growth, for instance, and I've looked at the period between the great financial crisis and the pandemic, a 10-year period, just take out some of the noise we've seen in the business in the last couple of years, keeping in mind that performance has been incredibly strong throughout the pandemic as well. But if we look at that period, the organic growth averaged about 10%, which is very impressive for a business of this scale. And it ranged from 5 to 14% in that period. Especially in the last few years, uh, fashion and leather goods have been a huge driver of that, and especially the two big brands that we've talked about, uh, LV and Dior. If you look at profitability measures, so if we look at gross margins, until the pandemic, they were very consistent in the mid-60s, and operating margins were around the 20% level until 2021. Now, while that's significantly lower than for a company like Hermes, that's partly or largely to do with a mix of business. Clearly, you have retailing, you have perfumes and cosmetics and other businesses in LVMH that are much less profitable than fashion leather goods, and wines and spirits. And then just to mention one other financial metric that we tend to look at, in terms of leverage, when I look at net debt to EBITDA, that's about 0.4 times trailing. And given the diversification of the business and the track record and the strength of the brands and everything, that looks like a very conservative financial profile to me. So I think the metrics clearly sort of back up everything we've said about the brands and capital allocation, et cetera. Just to better understand control of the business, how much of it is owned and controlled by the Arno family today relative to the public shareholders? So the most recent filings that I've seen, I think, suggests that they control almost 50% of the capital and they control a little bit more than 60% of the votes of the business. So although it's a listed business, technically, clearly the family's in control here. And I think especially with the way Mr. Arno is still so involved in the business and now also his, his children. In that sense, it's a family business, but it remains to be seen whether it's a sort of multi-generational business in the way that Hermes is or has become, or whether when it comes to succession, whether there will be some sort of change in the structure of the group. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of striking that a business that was effectively built in the 80s is today such a large and dominant business. I guess one of the things that is most interesting to me is when you think of LVMH, so many people love to compare it to Hermes. Bernardo No is famously recognized as the wolf in cashmere for his deal-making prowess. He attempted a hostile takeover of Hermes back in the mid-2010s, I believe. How are those businesses different? I understand one's a conglomerate, one's focused on a single brand. But are there any other cultural or interesting differences that you found between those two? I think it is significant that one is a conglomerate because it does make it more complex and difficult to manage. Hermes is also already a sort of multi-generational business. And I think partly for that reason, culturally, they are slightly different. So Hermes has been much more focused on organic developments historically. LVMH has been and perhaps more focused on the product as such, whereas LVMH has been more focused on, and Mr. Arnault, therefore, has been much more focused on building a business. Now, obviously, his brands, I think at brand level, many or most of the significant brands in the uh, LVMH family 
are still incredibly well managed and very high quality. And some of them, so Laura Piana is one example, are probably considered to be as high a quality as a Hermes, although they operate in different sort of segments. But Mistrano has been much more about building and developing and growing the business, where I think Hermes has been much more focused on working with what they already have in terms of the product. I think there's many similarities between the two. If you look at the very high degree of vertical integration upstream in terms of sourcing raw materials and tanneries and downstream in terms of operating, especially for brands like LV and Dior, just like for Hermes, they fully control the distribution of the product. They're similar in that sense. They're similar in the sense that they manufacture much or most of the products, at least for the, for the sort of major brands in France and certainly in Europe. As I said, I think at brand level, some of the brands in the LVMH group are very similar in their culture to Hermes. But I think, of course, at group level, it looks quite different because of the sort of breadth of LVMH. When I look across the European luxury house ecosystem, most of the companies are characterized by relatively strong financials. Differences in growth profile and reinvestment runway and the strength of their brands. How is it that the industry has evolved in Europe to be characterized by such great companies? Yeah, I think that's been one of the key trends over the last number of years in the luxury industry that the strong have been getting stronger. And you've seen a real consolidation of this space. So historically, the European luxury industry was dominated by family businesses. Now, there's still a number of them, and probably more so in Italy, for instance, than in France. In France, especially, you've seen the emergence of these conglomerates, not just LVMH, but you've also seen Caring, of course, the owner of Gucci. You've seen Richemont, although a um, Swiss-listed business. And I think there's a few reasons for that. I think one of them is what we mentioned in relation to Bulgaria, the fact that you've had these family businesses with great brands and great products. But when it's time to grow the business internationally, I think many of them have felt that they haven't had the required or the necessary capital to do that. And especially as retail and the retail experience has become more important to these businesses, I think scale has become more important. And of course, this also means that in terms of locating flagship stores in the best locations, etc. So I think that's one key reason. There are others. They're usually better able to attract talent. They're in a better position when it comes to identifying and working together with key opinion leaders and when it comes to navigating social media, etc. Of course, when it comes to analyzing the brands, that still needs to be done at individual brand level. As we've already discussed, LVMH is a collection of brands, but their thinking is not in terms of synergies, certainly not on the cost side and not so much on the revenue side either. Interestingly enough, despite the vast amounts of wealth created in the United States, it's tough to think of any luxury houses here that have really been built with success. What are kind of the cultural differences internationally that allow some countries to have such a storied success in luxury versus others? So I think if we start off with the US example, just to cover that, two of the examples that are often referred to are Coach and Michael Kors. Of course, from a European perspective, I don't think they'd be considered true luxury businesses. And I'll come to the reason why. If you look at what a luxury business is, the business model is pretty unique. And luxury businesses tend to do things very differently to most other consumer goods businesses. So for instance, they tend to have a high degree of vertical integration, both upstream and downstream. They tend to produce in high-cost locations. So if you look at LVMH, they mainly produce in Western Europe and the US, certainly for their sort of large fashion and leather goods brands. They tend to restrict the production volumes. So there's a number of things that are quite unique or peculiar about these business models. And of course, if you look at the US names, in that sense, they are not luxury businesses. So for instance, they have significant wholesale exposure. Now, in some cases, they've tried to reduce that in recent years, but they still have a meaningful wholesale exposure, which you don't see at LV, for instance, or Dior. They don't operate with that sort of volume restraint that the European luxury goods groups do. And there are interesting differences here between different countries. 
in what I think people often perceive as being luxury goods businesses, but which often aren't. So let's just go through a few examples. The French groups are the most obvious and clearest example of true luxury goods businesses based on the sort of criteria I just discussed. If you look at the Italian groups, they tend to be much more fashion businesses than luxury businesses. For instance, you're looking at much shorter time horizons usually in the fashion business. In the luxury goods business, there's an element of timelessness, which is key to the product offering and to the DNA of those businesses. And the fashion businesses tend to be more focused on growing volumes, and the business model looks more like any other consumer goods business that you might look at. So that's the Italians. And of course, these are sort of generalizations, but I think they're often true. And they also illustrate really well what these different business models mean. If you look at the Germans, they tend to operate premium business models. And the key difference between the premium model and the luxury model is that premium products tend to be focused on product performance and the consumer can therefore compare them in a way that you can't with luxury products. Luxury products tend to be singular, and you can see that in the way they're being advertised. You know, it's all about nurturing the brand image, and it's not about the product and the product performance. Whereas when you look at the German so-called luxury car industry, for instance, I would argue, and many would argue, that it's really more a premium model, largely because of that focus on product performance, because of their emphasis on volume growth, et cetera. And we've touched on the American examples, which I think these days would probably be labeled mastiche or mass prestige. So there, I think they're good examples for getting a sense of what, what is luxury, but also what isn't luxury. You touched upon the importance and the contribution from the Chinese consumer in an environment where Chinese GDP growth is decelerating relative to what its average has been over the past decade. How do you think about the influence of the Chinese consumer on the European luxury houses and LVMH in particular? So this is a key question for most, if not all, of the European luxury goods players. So what's happened during the pandemic and over the last three or five years is that the Chinese have continued to spend on European luxury goods, but they are now spending that money in China, which is commonly referred to as repatriation of spending. So to 60 to 70% of that spend happened outside of China pre-pandemic, and now it's down to very little or almost nothing, of course, because the Chinese, at least so far, aren't traveling again. LVMH will say that they're agnostic in terms of where the spend happens. So they've really built up the infrastructure in China to serve both online and offline to serve their clients there, as opposed to in Europe. The one-third of spend being Chinese is important, but even more important is the fact that over the last 20 years, I think two-thirds of growth in personal luxury spending has come from the Chinese. It's been hugely important, and it will remain hugely important. And there's a few question marks here. So, of course, one is to do with Chinese economy as such, how much and how sort of fast is the inevitable slowdown in the economy. Another one is to do with policy or policymaking. I think there was a lot of noise around this last year and a lot of concerns that the Chinese government was becoming more focused on redistribution. And when I speak to these companies, they're not terribly concerned. And in fact, they often refer to this as being supportive because, of course, most luxury purchases are made by what we would probably call upper middle class or affluent consumers as opposed to the very rich. I think consumer preferences is probably to me. And brand preferences is probably a bigger question mark. And it partly comes back to the growth paradox we talked about earlier. For how long can you grow a brand like LV without diluting any of the brand equity? And how long can you manage to sort of that element of scarcity that is so important when it comes to luxury goods? And there's also a question around, are Chinese consumers perceiving these European luxury brands more as fashion brands as opposed to luxury brands? And the significance of that being that, of course, if they're perceived as fashion brands, um, that probably means that you should expect more volatility and that there's sort of less stickiness in terms of the loyalties these consumers show to certain brands, partly or largely because they don't have the same history with the brands that European consumers do. And then I guess in terms of M&A, Tiffany 
is the most notable recent transaction, although the company has done a number of smaller transactions over the years. But how do you think about what has characterized their M&A strategy historically? So they've historically bought good assets, good brands, where they feel they can be a better owner. If you look at Bulgari, that was an incredible brand already. But I think the family at the time felt that they couldn't develop the brand and provide the resources that were necessary in the sort of today's marketplace. This goes back to what we discussed earlier about the growth of the mega brands and the fact that the large brands have been outperforming the smaller brands in this industry for some time. So at the time of the acquisitions, most analysts and investors felt they significantly overpaid for that business. So they paid around 4 billion euros. And at the time, that business was generating turnover of just over a billion, and they earned well under 100 million of EBIT. So clearly, these are very high multiples, even for a high quality asset like that. Interestingly, and these are 2019 numbers, at that point, the business was turning over about 3 billion and generating about half a billion of EBIT. So clearly, when you look at the 4 billion they paid initially, and you look at the 500 million of EBIT they're generating less than 10 years after the time of that acquisition, that looks like a much better return on invested capital. And of course, there's more to do in terms of developing that business further. What LVMH did is they obviously have the capital to grow the store base, which has become increasingly important. The whole retail experience has become increasingly important in the luxury business. Of course, if we go back in time, it used to be much more about the product and the quality of the product and the craftsmanship. Now, that's still important, but the retail experience has certainly become much more important than it was. And so I think that that's one example of where LVMH had the financial resources and the know-how to help develop Bulgari. And there's been a number of other things they've done. They've reduced wholesale exposure, which is something you've seen across the luxury space. And the idea there is to increase your control of the value chain and to have a direct relationship with the end consumer. They've reduced the number of SKUs, et cetera. So they've clearly streamlined and professionalized and structured the business and the results are there for everyone to see. And I think similarly with Tiffany, clearly a great brand, um, great associations, but it's been undermanaged. And I think clearly Mr. Arn also an opportunity to acquire the asset. And I think he's probably hoping to replicate what he did at Bulgari. You haven't seen LVMH acquiring turnaround type businesses. They've already been good businesses, but they've perhaps not been as good managed as they should be, or they've perhaps not been under the right ownership in terms of having the financial muscle to invest in the business. And I think in many of those cases, LVMH is the obvious buyer. So if you want another parallel to Berkshire, I think for many family businesses in this industry, LVMH has become the obvious place to go to if you do want to sell. Now, obviously, some are holding out like Hermes, et cetera, but I think they're the exceptions because they have the scale, et cetera. And many of the smaller businesses are combining with these large conglomerates. I thought it'd be interesting to spend some more time on perhaps some of their more recent acquisitions, whether it be Tiffany or Ramoa, and what those kind of mean for the business going forward. If we start with Remova, because a number of things they did there after they acquired the asset, I think are relevant for what they may want to do at Tiffany. Alexander Arnaud was put in charge of that business. It was a very strong brand and a successful business, like most other acquisitions Arnaud has done. Similar to many of the other deals they've done, they saw a real opportunity to improve the performance of the business and to sort of um, stand the growth runway, etc. He modernized the brand and he did that by entering into a number of collaborations with celebrities. He brought on brand ambassadors. There's a real blueprint there for things that they are doing or want to do at Tiffany. So if you look at Tiffany, after they acquired the asset, they very quickly put a new LVMH management team in place there, including some seniors from the group, including Michael Burke. And similarly to Remua, they've modernized the brand. They've run a very controversial advertising campaign in the US market with the tagline, Not Your Mother's Tiffany. And it's actually caused some upset among some of their traditional customer base. But I think it's a clear example of Alexander and the rest of that management team trying to modernize 
the brand and make it more sexy and more interesting to a younger audience. They're emphasizing high-end products in their advertising. One of the most famous examples of that so far has been the Beyonce and Jay-Z campaign about love, which features this very famous yellow diamond. They've, similarly to what Alexander did at Remoa, he's brought on a number of new brand ambassadors, many of them young, many of them appealing to that sort of younger demographic they're targeting. They're launching design jewelry products at a higher rate than previously. And one of the interesting things there is that when you look at the gross margins of those products compared to precious stones, which has been much more of an emphasis historically for Tiffany, those margins are often significantly higher when it comes to design jewelry. And they're also spending significant amounts of capex in investing in store refurbs, including their flagship on Fifth Avenue. And so far, things seem to be going well. It's clearly early days. But when we look at things like market share data, and that's not just in the US, but it's also if you look at markets like China, and you look at search data, etc., it's all very encouraging. So interestingly enough, it's like these companies hardly advertise, or at least the way they do it comes off as more organic than kind of forced. What is their go-to-market strategy in acquiring new customers and building the brand? These businesses do things very differently from most consumer goods businesses. And one set of anti-rules or anti-laws that I like to refer to is Sean Olcafer's anti-laws of marketing. For instance, product performance doesn't really matter as opposed to in the premium space or in the mass prestige space. These businesses tend not to listen to clients. They don't do focus groups. Arnold says he doesn't use these focus groups for product development because he doesn't want to hold back the creativity in any way. So what's really unique about these businesses is that the offering drives the market development, not customer demand. So what else do they do differently? Often their advertising is not really aimed at their customers, it's aimed at everyone else. And the idea there, of course, is to develop a sense of prestige around the brand. And that social element to luxury brands or that social aspect of luxury brands is key. And I guess finally, in terms of the way these products are advertised and marketed, price, unlike other consumer goods segments, doesn't really matter. And in fact, in many cases, higher prices drive higher demand. And so you kind of hit on some of the strengths of the business, the diversification of its assets, the durability of its brands, its pricing power, returns on capital. What are some of the vulnerabilities of a business? And to put the question another way, I guess, is 10 years from now, if we're looking back at why the business hasn't grown or created value in the way that it has over the last 20 years, what do you think could be some of the reasons for that? I think what I call the growth paradox or the growth equation, I think is one in terms of uncertainties or risks here, growing brands like LV to a point where they are no longer perceived as luxury brands, at least by a proportion of the population, or at least those who are inclined to buy LV products. That's clearly one concern. I think the complexity of the business is a challenge. It may not necessarily become a problem, but it depends on how well that's managed through the succession. So this is clearly a sprawling, big beast. Mr. Arnold has been able to keep on top of that because of his history with the business and his obsessiveness, etc., and his personality. But I think that complexity compared to a Hermes, for instance, can become a challenge or a burden in worst case. And so we'll have to see if this really becomes a true sort of multi-generational family business like Hermes. I think perhaps slightly less important to the overall investment case, but still, I think LVMH are probably seen as slightly less good at selling businesses. They tend to buy and hold on to businesses. But that, of course, also includes some businesses that haven't performed so well. I can think of a handful of examples of that. But so far, they've not been material enough to impact financials at group level. But of course, worst case, if that was to be a more material brand or business, that could be an issue. The final sort of risk or challenge, I think, in 10 years time, we look back and we do a postmortem and we try and figure out why things didn't carry on in the way they have been. I think changes in the Chinese marketplace would be one very likely sort of reason for that, whether it's because the economy and consumer spending has slowed down much more than we expected, 
or because consumer preferences and brand preferences in that market have changed because they're not quite as sticky as they may be in Western Europe or the US. They're the key things I would worry about. In summary, if you look across the business, you've mentioned some best-in-class peers such as Hermes and Berkshire Hathaway. But through your evaluation of LVMH, what are some of the takeaways for investors and lessons learned that could be applied to other potential investments? And then as you kind of assess management, the types of things from an operational perspective that you believe would characterize best-in-class operators as well. The first lesson, and this applies both to operators and investors, I think, is this idea of, as Mr. Arnold himself would express it, being optimistic long-term and pessimistic short-term. What he means by that is he is trying, in the short to medium term at least, manage the business in a way that he knows he's around tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and in five and 10 years time. So that involves conservatively managing the balance sheet, diversifying the portfolio of brands and businesses and categories and price points and reinvesting in the business and all these things. So that's sort of being pessimistic short term, assuming that if everything goes wrong here, how do I make sure that I'm still standing? But also being optimistic long term, which relates to actually having exposure to all these great growth opportunities and trends, such as the Chinese market, or who knows, in the next 10 or 20 years, some markets in Africa. So you can't be so conservative and cautious that you don't allow yourself to be exposed to those sort of trends. I think for operators, there's a couple other things. One of them is doing what is right in the long term, even if it's suboptimal in the short term. So when you look at aspects of these luxury businesses, they have business models. They run their businesses in the way that you probably wouldn't teach at business school, right? So they don't relocalize their production to low-cost locations. They're highly vertically integrated. They don't advertise excessively, et cetera. But they're doing all of that because they think it's right for the long-term brand equity. And so I think that's a really important lesson. And then finally, I think for operators, once again, the idea of combining decentralization with a high degree of accountability and attention to detail, I think is so powerful. Clearly, that's more of a cultural aspect of the business and largely in this case to do with Mr. Arnold's personality and running the business. But there are probably some of the key lessons that I would take away from looking at LVMH. Fantastic. Well, Christian, thank you for joining us to explore this amazing and incredibly diverse business. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 